Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. The University of Alabama had their first home football game yesterday, so we will not be recorded by... Shut up. I only say Roll Tide ironically. I don't I don't football. It's not a thing that I do. But I also just I have no frame of reference for understanding any anything. I've never gone to a school that had a football team. Same. So Yeah. Santa Cruz didn't wasn't exactly known for its football. So <laughs> Ultimate Frisbee? Hell yeah. But football, yeah. no. Marriage awana use. Hey now. <laughs> Banana slugs. That's not a sport. BT dubs. It's just a recreation. Uh, isn't it though? <laughs> pot is not a sport. I'm pretty sure smoking pot is like antithetical to sports. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess, Hamlet, and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. And this week, we're talking King John 101. What is up, Aubrey? King John, my white whale. Woo, woo. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this show and come back for more. And it's so exciting because it seems like every week more and more people are coming back for more. We're very mm-hmm. excited about that. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Each week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Vernon Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. I like how you wrote that in for me instead of like You're allowing welcome. me to make up my own because um, I would have struggled. So I know you always anyway. fumble for it and I was just there and I was thinking about it. I was like, Vernon, Thanks. there we go. Uh, Yeah, so the 101 level is introductory stuff. It's everything that we think you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes, and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our opinions and thoughts and feelings and Mm -hmm. emotions and sassiness. Sometimes sometimes my cat's opinions and thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. when they decide to interrupt the show like they did last week Yeah, and the week before and the week before that. All right, it's time for the rhetorical device of the week because we're word nerds. So each week we will draw a random device from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. Mm -hmm. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Yes. Draw a card, applesauce. Yes, applesauce. Cute. Okay, now you tell me when to stop. Here we go. Stop. Ooh. The card this week is catacresis. I love catacresis. Catacresis. C-A-T-A-C-H-R-E-S-I-S. Catacresis. It means... It's a substitution. It's a form of substitution rhetoric. It means... The use of a word in a context that differs from its proper application, comparable to a mixed metaphor. For example, Hamlet says... If it's not... Oh, what? How are you going to have a catacresis example that's not Dogberry? I know, right? Okay, 
ASC, what is you doing, baby? Well, anyway, the example given is to take arms against a sea of troubles. That is one, such a bad example. I'm one angry. Cannot, one cannot take up arms against the sea. You will lose. And it's water. It's anyway. That's such okay. a bad example. Can we give, give us a, a Dogberry better example? one? Please. Okay. So like in Much Ado About Nothing, when Dogberry says, thou shalt be cast into everlasting redemption for this, when he means not redemption, the opposite of redemption. Isn't that like a malaprop, though? Isn't that mixing up one word for its for a s- similar sounding? All right, hang on. Because I get where what you're saying. Are you pulling out like the rhetoric text? The oh, here we go. I got my Lanham, and I got my Shakespeare's Wordcraft, and I'm fucking looking it up. Oh, I'm willing to admit that I might be wrong. Because I, I think those are similar, but I always thought the type of stuff that Dogberry did was slightly different. Not exactly mixed metaphors, but like straight up mixing up wrong, wrong words. Okay, well, the Lanham offers misuse or misapplication. Okay. And their example is also from Hamlet. Um, I will speak daggers to her. Okay. Now let's see what scott kaiser has to say about it i mean he doesn't use the the greek words but my copy of the kaiser is not quite as annotated as perhaps it could have been um and i've got acrologia attached to malaprops and dogberry incorrect in phraseology yeah okay well okay i am prepared to walk back my outrage (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> over this card okay although i still think that that is a bad example okay i think but I in daggers to her is a better example okay but in general catacresis is like a mixed metaphor basically the use of a word in a context that differs from its proper application so there you have it catacresis after much ado about it <laughs> catacresis much ado about catacresis 10 out of 10 would watch that play p.s yes oh my god yes okay here we go it's now time for your burbage break with master master hamlet okay babies buckle up because this week i am talking to you guys about the authorship question which hashtag not really a question not a question yeah Um, So I'm going to give you a quick and dirty overview of some popular candidates for authorship of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Spoiler alert, they are all wrong, because in this house, we believe that William Jefferson Shakespeare wrote the plays of William Jefferson Shakespeare. That is what we believe. Damn straight. Yeah. Where did that accent come from? Damn straight. (laughs) Sorry. Yes. You know damn right. Yeah. yeah. Shutting up. So... I've I've got one, two, three. I've got four candidates for you here that I'm going to take you through uh, the highlights. If you're interested, Wikipedia, <laughs> go there, get all the tea. Um, I was just looking at the the whole list of candidates that Wikipedia has 
amalgamated um, for for authorship. And there yeah. are 87, 87 people Jesus. that have been at some point put forward for authorship of Shakespeare's plays. <sighs> it's it's wild. Pretty much everyone you've ever heard of. Me. Me. Yeah. I'm the real Shakespeare, you guys. I have yeah. a time turner and I've used it prolifically. Yeah. I Spoilers. mean, it's Barnaby Barnes, who was a playwright. He's got one play, Devil's Charter, which is great. Richard Burbage. Uh, <laughs> okay. Robert Cecil, who was uh, a statesman in the <sighs> courts. Cervantes the statesman Cervantes really come on now Uh he had his own career and his own shit come Uh on Henry Chettle another playwright no um Daniel Defoe who is a novelist who lived well was born 50 years after Shakespeare died (laughs) uh Thomas Decker Robert Devereux, second Earl of Essex, which means something no. to you, Aubrey, but perhaps not our listeners. He uh, was at the heart of a rebellion in 1602. I mean, basically every every playwright of the early modern period is listed here. Uh, John Fletcher, Robert Greene, Thomas Haywood, Thomas Kidd, Ben Johnson, Thomas Middleton, John Lilly. <laughs> Henry Nash, not Henry Nash, Thomas Nash, Anthony Monday. It's just, it's, it's wild. Um, so Wikipedia, frankly, if you're interested, but here we go. So the, the first, um, first guy that I want to talk about is Edward de Vere, second Earl of Oxford. So hashtag, uh, Oxfraudians, cause uh-huh. they're frauds. Total um, frauds. Total frauds. Fake news. All of this is fake news. So Oxfordians, or as we call them, Oxfraudians, because they're frauds, uh, Oxfordians reject the historical record that attaches Shakespeare to his plays. um, And they claim that circumstantial evidence supports Oxford's authorship by proposing that the, the historical evidence that points to Shakespeare is part of a conspiracy theory that falsified the record to protect the identity of the quote unquote real author. You know, it's, it's good when it starts with a conspiracy theory. Yeah. I see you shaking your head. Conspiracy. Yeah. Um, So Oxfordians claim that marked passages in the Earl of Oxford's copy of the Bible can be linked to biblical allusions in Shakespeare's plays. So, obviously he must have written the plays that's some shit like playing a beatles album backwards is going to reveal like satanic messages or some crap that's like this kind of level of crazy the oxfordians also aren't really bothered that no plays survive with oxford's name on them and that's actually sort of important to their theory because they think that shakespeare was either a front man or like a, a play broker who published the plays under his own name, or he was just an actor with a similar name, and then he sort of got misidentified as the playwright since the first Shakespeare biographies of the early 1700s. The most compelling evidence against the Oxfordian theory, I mean, not the most compelling, but a kind of a key detail, uh, is that Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, died in 1604, 
which is 12 whole years before Shakespeare died. And also we've got about 12 whole plays that happened after 1604. Uh, Oxfordians to combat this are like, nah, nah, the, the new publication of Shakespeare plays stopped in 1604 and everything that appears after that is just like, it was already in the hopper ready to come out but they weren't new but it's like the mental gymnastics that require you to reconcile that thinking are mind-boggling nah dude and they also think that the dedication on the first page of Shakespeare's sonnets which was published in 1609 uh implies that the author was dead before they were published in 1609 so that helps them with their Earl of Oxford theory. The other thing that they they keep talking about is like the late plays um, show some evidence of revision and collaboration sort of at a higher level than, than some of the earlier plays. And they say that that is because those plays were completed by other playwrights after the Earl of Oxford died. But he definitely started them because he is Shakespeare. Hashtag... <laughs> fake news um so again go to the wikipedia page for this theory it has its own wikipedia page um it's it's bananas and it's also entirely wrong i cannot state enough how wrong this theory is it is wrong but i would say that this is probably the second most popular theory for shakespearean authorship that is not shakespeare it might be tied for the first with the last guy I'm going to talk about. Anyway, so now we're going to move on to one of my favorite theories for Shakespearean authorship. And that is our good friend, Christopher Marlowe. Hashtag fake death. Because <gasps> he was a spy, right? He was he a spy. Fake his own death. Yeah. So wow. Marlovians, which is what they are called. Um, Marlovians think that Christopher Marlowe faked his death in 1593 when he was stabbed through the eye with a dagger in a pub in front of many many witnesses and he continued writing plays but just under Shakespeare's name because it wasn't safe to be Christopher Marlowe anymore so he had to be Shakespeare even though Shakespeare existed independently of Christopher Marlowe and had yeah. some good hits I it's again the mental gymnastics are bananas wow. um so they point out as evidence of their theory that coincidentally shakespeare and marlowe were born two months apart but the first time that the name william shakespeare is known to have been printed in connection with any literary work was with the publication of venus and adonis which came out just a, like a week or two after the apparent death of Christopher Marlowe. Again, fake news. And that, that requires like a whole separate rabbit hole into print culture and authorship practices. Um, yeah. But it's fake. It's fake news. So Marlowe's death was accepted as genuine by literally everyone, but also by 16, 16 jurors at an inquest held by the Queen's personal coroner literally everyone at the time thought he was dead and also there is no evidence none to support his being alive after 1593 zero 
evidence. And, you know, there are similarities between Shakespeare and Marlowe's works, and we know that they work together, but their writing style is just, it's too different. And there's no solid evidence that Marlowe had any hand in Shakespeare's plays after his death because he was dead. Dead is an old dead bitch. Yeah. Marlowe was dead yeah. to begin with. Well, to end yeah. with anyway. <laughs> um, wow. So then this is another one. I'm going to move to our third, our third. This is my, one of my favorite theories because it's so ludicrous. Um, Queen Elizabeth. Like, bitch, she was running a country. How do you think she had time to write plays? Right? Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Um, and also, according to ShakespeareAuthorship.org, which is a website that I don't think has been updated in like six years, um, the only actual evidence for this theory is that the history plays are pro-English propaganda. Oh, well then. I'm convinced. That's it. That is, yep. Know, Done. Is My mind is forever Done. turned. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. Wow. You're welcome, listeners. I've solved Shakespeare for you. Our podcast has reached its zenith. We can go nowhere from here. So thanks for <laughs> listening. Uh, this was fun while it lasted. Bye forever. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Queen Elizabeth. Mm. That lady was fucking awesome. For real. Was she the author of Shakespeare's plays? No, because Shakespeare was. There are like numerous inter like recorded interactions between the two of them. Like, no. So to to sum up, well, not to sum up, to round it out, to finish with, we have Sir Francis Bacon, who was good enough for Mark Twain. So good enough for us. Mark except Twain. Not. Yeah. So Francis Bacon uh, is, I think, think perhaps the most enduring candidate for authorship um, who is not Shakespeare. I, I, Earl of Oxford has a, a significant following, but there are, I think, maybe just as many Baconians. Um, so those two, I think, are the, the top two, and they're the ones that just won't go away. <laughs> so this theory, importantly, dates to the 1850s and no further back. So to refresh, Shakespeare died in 1616. This theory happened 200 plus years later. Yep. Um, its leading proponent is a woman called Delia Bacon, no relation to Sir Francis Bacon. Um, and the theory is based on close similarities between the writing from these two men, such as uh, Bacon's quote, poetry is nothing else but feigned history versus Shakespeare's the truest poetry is the most feigning, which comes from As You Like It. Or Bacon wrote, he wished him not to shut the gate of your majesty's mercy versus Shakespeare's the gates of mercy shall all shall be all shut up from Henry V. Which I guess are similar, but also I think context probably matters. And also, is that enough to base a theory on? Also, how do we know Bacon wasn't hearkening back to Shakespeare? Like, why Little does she bit. look at... Why does she look at these words and go, clearly, Sir Francis Bacon was Shakespeare? Why couldn't Delia it be the other way around? Why does it never occur to her that Bacon was picking up on something Shakespeare wrote? That's so, so stupid. Delia Bacon is a fascinating woman. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sidebar. Um, no, I'm gonna finish this and then I'm gonna sidebar into Delia Bacon because she's fascinating. Great. Okay. So, uh, Sir Francis Bacon was a master at 
ciphers and coded language. Um, and so he is supposed to have left his signature in the Shakespeare canon in code. Oh. Yeah. And this is sort of the linchpin for most people. Uh, Dr. Isaac Platt in the late 1800s discovered in Love's Labor's Lost the Latin word. Um, okay. Deep breath. I'm going to try it. On Honorificabilitudinatibus. So anyway, oh this word, this is the word uh, that is is the key to all Bacon Shakespeare. Um, it's Weird. a Latin word. It means the state of being able to achieve honors, but it is also supposed to anagram to the Latin phrase "high ludi f baconis nati tuti orbi," which means <laughs> <laughs> these plays, the offspring of F. Bacon, are preserved for the world. Hogwash, all of it. Wow, that's reaching. That's yeah. reaching. To sum up, those are four of the 87 candidates for Shakespeare's authorship. And they're all fake news. Shakespeare wrote the plays of Shakespeare. But now let's talk about Delia Bacon. Delia Bacon. She was interesting and uh-huh. spent the end of her life in an asylum because her mental state deteriorated so much. But importantly, before that happened, she got permission from Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon, where mm-hmm. Shakespeare is buried, to open his tomb. Oh, but there's a curse. Yeah. Yeah. So they they locked her in the church overnight with her and her pickaxe and her candles. And she like held a seance. And I'm not sure that she actually did open the tomb. Um, I'm calling all of this back from at least a year and a half ago of something I read. Mm-hmm. I've looked into her at several points in in my life, but not recently than more than a year and a half ago. So she, she spent the night in the church and they opened the door the next morning and they found her and she had become a little unhinged. And that was, I believe the, the beginning of her mental decline. That's because um, there's a curse on them bones. Don't disturb bit. the bones. A bit. Uh, so first of all, Delia Bacon, look her up. She's she's wild. And second, Trinity Church, what are you doing? Right? How are you going to let an American woman, first of all, is she American? I think she was American. I'm pretty sure she was American. But like, how, how are you going to let her open Shakespeare's grave? Yeah, like, the, I'd the like to know 1800s. what she said. I'd like to know what she said to convince them yeah. to let her do that. Like, what compelling evidence did she have to disturb a grave like that Right that's in a church? That's yep. fucked up. Anyway, um, that's your verbiage break. It was far ranging, but you're welcome. <laughs> Can I just add to this for yeah. one minute, though? I know verbiage breaks are your territory, but I just have what to up? say that when it comes to this quote unquote authorship question, fucking... No one questioned it for 200 years. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's an important thing. Shakespeare Uh, was Shakespeare. No one argued this point until this bitch, Delia Bacon, around this time, 1850s. This is the height of the romantic period uh, for literature. And all of a sudden, it it was a trend in that period in the 1800s that, like, you have to be super highly educated 
for you know to make these wonderful constructions for this heightened romantic poetry and then all of a sudden people started looking at Shakespeare with his non-university grammar school only education and put their elitist bullshit on it and were like well he didn't go to university he didn't have a lot of training so clearly he could not have written this well and I'm here to say fuck you to anybody who thinks that because excuse me some of the best musicians in the entire world, uh, the Beatles, didn't have formal musical education. How can you say that just because somebody doesn't have formal training that they can't create well? Like whatever happened to natural talent and like school of hard knocks and like picking stuff up in your life. You know what I mean? Like you can be self-taught about a whole lot of things. So like that is some bullshit and people like the god Mark Rylance and Kenneth Branagh and Derek Jacobi and all these dudes who think that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have written the plays that he wrote because he wasn't educated enough can go suck a big fat bag of dicks with yeah. your elitist crap. Get the hell out of here. Get out. Um, so this this list of 87 candidates for authorship on Wikipedia gives dates that they were first proposed for most of them. Um, and most of them date from like the 1930s and 40s. But yeah, Delia Bacon is the earliest yeah. one in 1857. So yeah, fucking nobody questioned it. Nobody until, questioned it. Yeah, until she got a B up her ass about like how educated you needed to be to construct sentences well. Yeah. Like that is some bullshit. Yep. It's some bullshit. Also, anybody who knows anything about a court of law knows that circumstantial evidence is not enough. Also, lack of evidence is not evidence. Yeah. So that just again, means you, I say you can't find evidence. <laughs> again, I say suck a bit, big fat bag of dicks. A little bit. And like, stop shitting on the thing I love the most, just because you can't possibly fathom someone being naturally talented at things. Fuck yeah. you. That was your burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. All righty. And an addendum by me. Uh, you, you want to play a game? Yeah, I do. All right. I do want to play a game. I want to feel better. Do it. So occasionally we, we put a game before our summary. And when we put a game before our summary, you know that someone's about to fail at Shakespeare. And this week <laughs> it's about is about to be me. Our good friend, Aubrey Whitlock. Yep. Um, yep. King John is one of my favorite plays and Aubrey hasn't read it in how many years? You know what? This fall makes the fifth year because I read <laughs> okay. it for Ralph's class five years ago. Yeah. So, and I've been trying to see it in production right. and I have also failed at that. Sure. So I'm failing so, on all kinds of levels today. All right. So when you fail at Shakespeare, you get, what, you get a minute? Is that what we get? Yeah, I get, get a minute. A, you get a minute to explain the play. Yep. So I'm going to grab my timer. You ready? I am as ready as I'm going to be. Take it away. Okay. King John is about uh, King John, who is that lion from the Robin Hood animated film in the Disney movie, and uh, whose crown doesn't fit on his head, who whines a lot and sucks his thumb. And uh, there's a bastard. I forget whose bastard he is, but he's somebody's bastard who thinks, you know, like most bastards do, that he's owed more than he's been given, and he pushes a little boy off a cliff and um, that little boy obviously dies. His mom, Constance, is really sad about it and she's got a really pretty speech about grief. Uh, and then 
the bastard dies and John signs the Magna Carta. <laughs> Done. With six seconds to spare. Did I what did I win? You I got it right, right? Wrong. 100%. But also you you weren't even a little bit right. No, so, I'm pretty sure I wasn't. Yeah. John signs the Magna Carta. That doesn't happen in this play. Damn. There's there's no Magna Carta in this play. Not yet. Yeah. Damn so, it. Well, let's, oh, let's well. carry on and we'll yeah. we'll give a, a real summary to our listeners. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so when we when we start our summary section, we'd like to give you our uh, our five word unhelpful title. Mine this week is Arthur's dead. You know why? See, that had been a lot funnier if you actually knew why. Yeah, but you've just revealed that I you don't. don't know I mean, why. I know why. I know why he's dead because he was in John's way for the throne. Like that's why. Alrighty, my five-word title. France and England are fighting. Yep. <laughs> Which describes literally every history play ever written, all of them. Yeah, you're gonna have to narrow it down for me. But <laughs> I know, yeah. but it was so unhelpful. I was so proud. It is very unhelpful. It is very unhelpful. Might okay. be the most unhelpful title any of us have either written ever. That's any true. either of us has ever written. Yep, it's very generic. Ta-da! It's a history play, so we need to give you a little bit of a refresher on the family tree of House Plantagenet. And actually, this week, House Angevin, if that's how you pronounce it in the French. Um, and so what, is, what is that? What? The 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 family that, that these guys came from, they're the Angevin. A-N-G-E-V-I-N. Angevin. Angevin. All right. House um, that basically, okay, don't get hung up on the French names and my terrible pronunciation because these are the OG 12th and 13th century Plantagenets. These are like the first Plantagenets, y'all. Yep. Uh, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine had a tempestuous love story for the ages, um, told beautifully in The Lion in Winter with Catherine Hepburn playing Eleanor of Aquitaine and that guy, Peter O'Toole, playing Henry II. They were awesome. Anyway, it was so tempestuous, like she ditched the French king, Louis VII, that she was already married to, to get with Henry. They fought, they made up, they imprisoned each other, they took each other's land, because she owned a shit ton of France um, in her own right before she even got with him, and raised all of their kids to do the same. And they had a bunch of kids, they had like eight kids. Most notably, though, was Richard, the gay Lionheart or Richard Lionheart, Richard I, uh, Jeffrey, the classic overlooked middle child, uh, and John Lackland, <laughs> given the moniker because he was a whiny little bitch who lost all of his family's land in France and Wales during his very short reign as king. The Magna Carta was written, they forced John to sign it in 1215 because John was such a shitty king. So we're talking like, you know, early 13th century King John assumes the throne after his brother Richard, who spent most of his time crusading um, and sleeping with King Philip of France. Um, he died. He died yes. in battle. Yeah, I said it. Um, he he. Uh, Richard died in battle. Jeffrey was already already dead, but Jeffrey has a child named Arthur, and we'll get to that in just a second. So just keep that in mind. Um, this is Magna Carta time, and again. Magna Carta was drafted 
because John was such a shitty king and all of his barons like revolted against him. It was bad. Um, so here's the deal. Jeffrey, Eleanor and Henry's middle son, is Arthur's dad, the Arthur of this play. This is important because primogeniture. Okay. And that again is the first son's first son's claim, right? So Arthur being the first son of the old king's second living son, uh, he's actually, I think, like the third or fifth son, but they died, they died, has a better claim to the throne than his uncle John, the king's like fifth living son or third living son. Get it? King John assumed the throne in 1199 because his nephew, Arthur, mysteriously died and then went on to father King Henry III, who was the father of Edwards one through three, all three of them. Good for you. Not very creative in the naming, though. Edward III was Richard II's grandfather. You picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. Edward III had seven sons. Edward III did have seven sons, including John of Gaunt. Do we recognize that name, everybody? This is where we pick up with the War of the Roses, okay? So Edward III, again, was great-grandson of King John. Great-great-grandson? Hang on, generations here. Great-great-grand? No, just his grandson. Yep, just his grandson. And was Richard II's grandfather and also John of Gaunt's dad. That's where we pick up with Houses York and Lancaster. That's where the split happens. So this is only a few generations before. So just keep that in mind. This family that we're talking about in King John is the OG Plantagenets, where it all begins. Yeah. Uh, You're welcome. And now that you've got all that history, throw it out because it doesn't happen in the play. I know. <laughs> None of it. But again, I, don't, I know I mean, there, I know it, there are people really. like me out there yeah, in the yeah. world who just like to picture the family tree and how all of these people are connected. Oh, yeah. For real. Because it helps. So... Yeah, but yeah, no, Shakespeare doesn't talk about any of that. It's just it's just helpful on like where to place people in the history. Okay, so let's talk about dramatic personae, but only the really important people. So first on that list, obviously, is King John. He's the historical king at the time of the Magna Carta and also Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then there is Queen Eleanor, who is his mother and is apparently Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes. Yeah, I'm getting oh, God, that. Yes. Yeah, that is not yeah. apparent in the play, but... No. There it is. Eleanor she was Rackerton. a bad bitch. Like, oh, I, I know all about her, but I didn't oh, realize man. that she was in this play. Oh, yeah. Because yep. she's just called Queen Eleanor. There's yep. no is... no mention of Aquitaine. Uh, well, I mean, she's like Madonna. You only need one name. Right. It's just, just Eleanor, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. So then we have the family Falconbridge. That would be Robert, uh, his half-brother Philip the Bastard, a.k.a. Richard Lionheart's bastard son, supposedly, who's only mentioned in passing in the Holland Shed, who may not have actually existed, and their widow mother, Lady Falconbridge. So we, then we have Hubert, who is King John's lackey. <sighs> Lackeys are always named Hubert. Just like okay. a lackey. Then we have King Philip of France, a.k.a. Richard Lionheart's down low lover, and his son, Louis the Dauphin. So the question then is, is Louis the Dauphin uh, also the son of King Richard? Um, no, no, because two because boys can't make a baby. that works. But <laughs> I thought, wouldn't it be great if... Wouldn't it, though? It would. Wouldn't it? I wish that was how biology worked. Maybe a little bit. Uh, anyway, okay, so then we have Count Mellon. That's just how I'm going to say it. It's probably Melun or something because he's French. Uh, but I'm going to go with Mellon. Count Mellon. 
Uh, he's a French lord with some English blood. He's in one sentence in the summary, but he delivers some important news. So there we go. Great. Then we have Blanche of Castile, King John's niece. And Arthur, Duke of Brittany, King John's nephew and rival for the English throne, also importantly, a child. Mm-hmm. Then we have Constance, Arthur's mother. She and was married to Geoffrey. To conclude, Cardinal Pandulf, who is a papal legate, which just means Great. a messenger from the Pope. Yes. But a, a religious message from messenger. the Pope. A message from the Pope. Sorry. A transposing a little song? bit of Hamilton. Okay. Well, yeah, in Hamilton, a message from the king. Uh, message, I, I don't. I'm not in that Girl, particular pop culture. Climb bubble. out from under your rock and Can't. listen to the Hamilton soundtrack. Okay. PhD's got a PhD. <laughs> you right. Why is this place so goddamn popular? Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. not. Um, I don't have any reasons for why it's not, except that not. you know. When we, I, I just, you know, recall again the paper that we heard at the last Black Bears conference about why it should be, which is that um, King John is a better, this, that person argued that King John is a better avatar for a Trump-like figure than perhaps Julius Caesar, you know. So, so if you're thinking of, you know, hitting the theatrical arena with some political allegory, maybe King John is your guy. Um, just to switch it up and not make everyone everything about Caesar. But yeah, it's not a popular play at all. Although, some pretty big theaters are doing it right now. It's a good so, play. It's a good play. Yeah. It's tight. It's short. Yeah. It's yeah. early. It's a really solid example of an early play. Um, yeah. And it's a history play that isn't directly in that War of the Roses cycle. Um, right. Which... I love in the way that I don't love Henry VIII, which is also outside that War of the Roses cycle, but it's right. a better play than Henry VIII because Henry VIII is a trash play. Hashtag trash play. Summary time. All right. So now we're going to summarize King John for you in a segment that this week we're calling Arthur's death is the high point of this play. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. Uh, ha. Okay. We're going to do right. it now. Let's do it. Uh, I need a timer. Okay. Here. Born we ready. Go. Uh, so King John receives an ambassador from France who demands on pain of war that he renounce his throne in favor of his nephew, Arthur, whom the French King Philip believes to be the rightful heir to the throne because of primogeniture and reasons. And John's all like, nah, bro. And then John adjudicates an inheritance dispute between Robert Falconbridge and his older brother, Philip the Bastard, during which it becomes apparent that Philip is the illegitimate son of King Richard I, the Lionheart. Dun, 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 dun. What? Yeah. Uh, Queen Eleanor, who is mother to both King Richard and King John, recognizes the family resemblance and suggests that the Bastard renounce his claim to the Falconbridge land in exchange for a knighthood. And everybody's like, oh yeah, this is a real good deal. Let's do that. So John knights the Bastard under the name Richard Plantagenet. Ooh, there it is uh and the bastard's mother lady falconbridge enters in a rage because she's like hey my son has been calling me an adulteress that's fucked up don't do that but then she finds that things have turned out pretty okay and she's like oh yeah no totally king richard was philip's father there you go act mm -hmm. one all right act two in france philip prepares to lay siege to angiers to help arthur reclaim the throne 
because obviously it's preferable to have a friendly child on the throne of England instead of a shitty curmudgeon like John. King John, with the bastard Eleanor, Blanche, and some lords, arrives in France and prepared to either have a friendly chat or a fucking big old showdown. Eleanor and Constance, that's Arthur's mother, bicker over their son's legitimacy, both of birth and to the crown, and until King Philip intervenes and suggests they put it to the men of Angiers whose rule they will accept. Mm -hmm. How very democratic. And both John and Philip make speeches. The citizens declare themselves Englishmen and loyal to the crown. These are citizens in France. <laughs> we know this is fiction. That's never going to happen. <sighs> Saying that until John and Arthur sort it out for themselves, they'll bar the city from either. This is a very smart move that will definitely not result in both armies attacking the town. Oh, wait, here come the alarms and the excursions. The French herald declares Arthur the winner of the day. The English herald declares John the winner of the day. The citizens suggest the marriage between Blanche and the Dauphin, a scheme that gives John a stronger claim to the throne, while the Dauphin Louis gains territory for France. Philip and John agree. Hooray. Constance is salty about the marriage between Blanche and the Dauphin and the consequent peace between France and England because she's a salty bitch. Uh, Cardinal Pandolf, who's the papal legate, arrives demanding that John allow the Archbishop of Canterbury to take up his post, but John is like, nah, bro. The legate then excommunicates John to the horror of Philip and the delight of Constance. Philip mm -hmm. stands by John for a minute, like literally holding his hand, and then he's like, mm, I'm not going to go up against the Pope. Sorry, bro. So he bows out and prepares to fight against John. Blanche gets sad because her adopted country is about to fight her new country, because remember, she's getting married to the Dauphin. Then in battle, the bastard has beheaded the Duke of Austria, which is a big deal for reasons. John has captured Arthur, and he hands him over to Hubert, his lackey, for safekeeping. The bastard mm. has spirited away Eleanor to safety. John asks Hubert to murder Arthur, because nothing bad has ever happened when you kill a kid. That's not a thing. Philip, sorry, Constance goes crazy with grief over Arthur's capture. Pandolf and Philip are like, bitch, take it down a notch. Philip tells the Dauphin that between John's assured murder of Arthur and the bastard who is ransacking the monasteries back in England to pay for the war, he will have no trouble asserting his claim to the English crown, and Philip is going to be king of England and also France. Act four. Hubert goes in with executioners to put out Arthur's eyes with a hot iron. Arthur successfully talks his way out of it, the way kids do, appealing to Hubert's love of him, and Hubert keeps Arthur close to spread rumors that he is dead and smuggle the boy to safety. Genius plan. John has crowned himself a second time, even though his nobles think this was a waste. Since they've allowed this, they ask for him to free Arthur. John agrees, just as Hubert arrives with the hashtag fake news of Arthur's succumbing to illness. A messenger brings news that France's army has landed in Kent, and both Constance and Eleanor are dead. The bastard brings tales of unrest in the country. Hubert tells John that discontent spreads as the people learn of Arthur's death. John blames Hubert, denies his own hand in Arthur's death, and bewails his rash act since an alive Arthur would be the end of his most current problems. Hubert reveals that Arthur's alive and John sends for him immediately in order to get the people back and the nobles back on his side. Absolutely nothing can go wrong now, right? Oh, wait a minute. Screw Arthur, disguised and trying to escape, jumps off the castle walls and dies. The noblemen discover Arthur's body. The bastard arrives, asking them to rejoin John. But when he sees Arthur's body, his allegiance wavers. Hubert enters, telling them Arthur is alive, and they show him the body and draw their swords on him. Hubert finally convinces them of his innocence in Arthur's death and carries the body away. And it's sad because dead kids are sad. 
even clumsy ones that apparently fall off a castle wall. So John hands his crown to Pandolf, who then recounts him as the Pope's man. So now John has been crowned three times. Uh, Pandolf then departs to convince France to stop fighting. The bastard enters with news of Arthur's death and advises John that the French will not give up so easily and they should definitely prepare for war uh, because this is what happens when kids die, John. Pandolf brings news to the Dauphin that John has reconciled with Rome, but the Dauphin has already aligned himself with the French lords and will not give up his suit for the English crown. So the Dauphin attacks the English. John gets sick. He hears that the battle isn't going well for him, and he leaves to seek refuge in an abbey. Wonder if you could have avoided any of this, John? I don't know. So weird. Mm. Um, the dying Count Melon tells the rebellious English lords that if France wins, the Dauphin is going to have them executed, and so then they repledge their allegiance to John. The Dauphin finds out that the English lords have deserted him. Hubert tells the bastard that John has been poisoned by a monk, and that the rebellious lords have returned to John's side with John's son and heir, Prince Henry, in tow. King John dies, the Dauphin sues for peace and leaves, the noblemen acknowledge Henry as king, everything ends pretty well, except that also pretty much everyone is dead now. The end. So, let's talk about some tips and tidbits, some cool stuff about this text, yo. Yeah, um, so I love this play, but the text is pretty straightforward, so... Here we go. Um, King John is one of those plays that was printed for the first time in the 1623 folio. It does not exist in Cordo. We don't have any other early authorial editions of it. Uh, and the editors of the new Arden 3 edition, which is great and you should get it, uh, suggest that it was set from foul papers, which um, I, I know we've mentioned before, but it's been a minute. Those are uh, the copy of the play that Shakespeare wrote in his own hand and is probably full of corrections and edits and whatever. Um, so the most probable date for the play's appearance is 1595-ish, but it could be anywhere from about 1587 to 1598. So it absolutely must come after Hollinshed's Chronicles because that's the source for this play. Um, and that appeared in 1587. So there's our early limit. Um, scholars also think that it came after a 1591 play called The Troublesome Reign of John, King of England. So that gives us after 1591. Um, and there's also some internal stylistic stuff going on with the writing that lead Gary Taylor and Stanley Wells to argue for 1595 or 1596. So there we have it. That's your date. Mostly, however, the, the play's dating comes from topical references within the play itself, of which there are many, but I'm going to talk about two. So the first is that scholars draw parallels between the play's defeat of the French and the real-life defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. So again, we have it must have occurred after 1588. Um, there's also the moment where John sends Hubert to kill Arthur and then later sort of walks back the command, which has been seen as a reflection of the way Queen Elizabeth signed the warrant for the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, and then later claimed that she had asked her Secretary of State to delay having the warrant sealed and delivered. After Mary Queen of Scots's execution, uh, Elizabeth flatly refused any blame for the execution of a fellow monarch, uh, and she cast all responsibility on her privy councillors, particularly that Secretary of State who was later tried for having disobeyed the Queen. So the King John's parallels to these two events put the play's composition firmly after the late 1580s. Um, and that is what I have to say about that. So 
Aubrey, why don't you tell us about a little production stuff? Yeah. Okay. So the thing that immediately jumps out to me about this play is that it's not it's not your Henry V, right? With their like big battles and like epic battle scenes happening. There's a few skirmishes here and there, but mostly stuff is related to us, right? Through messengers or whatever, um, which I think lends it a, you know, there's a challenge there for because it's that's like what greek tragedies do right everything is sort of narrated at you um and it's up up to you to like make those retellings compelling or as compelling as you can as compelling maybe as as maybe watching instead of watching battles themselves so so there's that to think about um and how to get through kind of some really dense text sometimes to to make that come alive but what that does though is that it frees you up to really focus on some of the great characters in this play. I mean, fuck King John. He's okay, but like the bastard. Oh my God, the bastard. He's got some incredible speeches. He's dynamic and like wily. I I love that guy. And Um, can I just, he's not a figurative bastard. You know, he's a literal bastard, but he's not a dick. Right. Like we had right. we'd talked about him putting him on the dick bracket. And I was like, nah, he he comes around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's got a really wonderful character arc. Yeah. Because I, I love a noble bastard. Unlike bastards like Don John or Edmund, who we will talk about later in this episode, um, who don't have an arc, have a turnaround. This guy, he's got a really wonderful arc. You've got some really powerhouse women again in this play you've got eleanor you've got mm. constance constance who like yeah she's sad she cries a lot but she has whew, yeah she has constance really is the role speeches that speech yeah. is um let's see if i can find it the grief fills up the room yeah. speech yeah. oh good god exactly. it's beautiful yeah she oh, yeah, yeah. i mean she okay. has this encounter with with john and the dauphin and they're like calm down you hysterical woman and she's like no you calm down i'm grieving like fuck you oh here it is it's uh three four three four she says and it's pretty short so i'm gonna read it yeah do like if you're an actor who is at all thinking about role dream roles you might want to play just listen to these words and tell me you don't want to play constance after this grief fills up the room of my absent child lies in his bed walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words, remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. Then have I reason to be fond of grief? Fare you well. Had you such a loss as I, I could give better comfort than you do. I will not keep this form upon my head when there is such disorder in my wit. O Lord, my boy, my Arthur, my fair son, my life, my joy, my food, my all the world, my widow comfort, and my sorrow's cure. I mean, are you just gutted? Yeah. Um, because that is what grief feels like. Some somewhat fun fact. This is not a fun fact. This is just a fact. Um, Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of the United States of America, found comfort in King John and particularly that speech after his youngest son died of yeah. uh, scarlet fever question mark while they were in the white house. I mean, talk about personifying your grief 
and yeah. and why so many of us cling to it. Like that's what she's speaking to there. And I just, I feel that real hard. She, I mean, she, but she's got wonderful stuff to say throughout the, this play until she dies. So um, there's some great parts to dig into. There's just some, there's some great scenes here. Yeah. Um, how do you know, think about how you stage that bit with Arthur thinking about, um, I, I'm trying to imagine like the kind of, I don't know, the kind of stage picture I would want to create for this whole play, frankly. Um, my head usually lives in a very like early modern space, literally, because I work in an early modern playhouse. But I'm trying to imagine how how you might stage this in a black box or in a proscenium thrust type of type of production. Anyway, that's what I got for production perspective. You've got great roles to dive into because you're not as bogged down with War of the Roses drama. Um, you can kind of release yourself a little bit from from the history and from the battles and things like that and really focus on the people. Um, and actually, now the more I think about it, the more I feel like that Blackfriars thing might have been right about like King John insisting on being crowned three times. And like, I think he actually is a really great avatar for modern day tyrannical leaders. Okay, well, uh, we are moving into our gossip. But before we do so... Uh, I'd like to issue a correction. And uh, we say a lot of things on this podcast and sometimes we misspeak. Oh, I'm so glad you filled this in. I'm sorry. You're welcome. <laughs> I just wrote, sometimes we say dumb shit. <laughs> anyway, yes. uh, we say a lot of things on this podcast and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it only seems right to do corrections as necessary. This time, I just need to apologize to our good friend, Adrian who texted me in a huff about a week ago and reminded me of how much of a dick Yakimo from Cymbeline is and that we didn't put him in the bracket or even list him. We straight up forgot him. Um, I'm not sure he would have made it very far since he was just your sort of garden variety peeping Tom, but still. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Cymbeline very quickly, Yakimo like sneaks into Imogen's bedroom and like touches her and steals some stuff from her from her off of her body while she's sleeping, which is gross, um, all in the name of winning a bet against, uh, you know, her her fian her husband, um, to make him think that she's false or whatever. So like he really does try to like ruin their relationship and stuff. And he's super pervy. Yeah, it's um, shitty. He deserved to be on that list for sure. He deserved to at least start out on that list and yeah. advance maybe to the first dick bracket round, make it on the chart, perhaps. We talked about Clotten and not Nasty Yakimo, and for that, I am ashamed, because we just straight up forgot him, so I'm yeah. sorry, boo. Also, sorry. It occurred to me last week. I was like, oh, Yakimo. Yeah, we didn't even mention yeah. him, so. Yeah, uh, we just forgot him. There were so many dicks. There were so many dicks. We just got lost. We got lost in a sea of dicks, and we Yakimo just got lost in the shuffle, man. Yeah. So, so sorry. Maybe, maybe next time, <laughs> if yeah. we do yeah. this again, ever. <laughs> But I think yeah. I think we could go out on a limb here and rule that in the world of Cymbeline, Yakimo's the biggest dick. Oh, for sure. Do you think the more, biggest. more than the queen, more than Clotten? He's got that agent of chaos vibe going on, but also he does icky things and has a really icky monologue about Imogen while she's sleeping. Yeah. And like talks about a mole on her breast and shit. It's gross. Super yeah. gross. So, moving on to some Shakes Bubble gossip. What's yeah. going on in the world of the Shakes Bubble? Well, in our bubble, in the Hurly Burly Bubble, we want to give a shout out to our listeners in Southeast Asia and our listeners 
in the Middle East and our listeners in South America, because apparently you guys exist and we're super excited about it. Um, so, I, you know, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, yeah. And see, see how we're doing. But, you know, it's uh, we're excited that you are people. Yeah. I mean, we yeah, I fell down a big rabbit hole of data yesterday and discovered that we've got listeners on almost every continent, Except which is Antarctica. pretty fucking cool. Yeah. We need to get those penguins. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Emperor Penguins. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, just looking at all kinds of stuff, like how spread out we are in this in our own country, in the in the States. And um, um, shout out to our listeners in Las Vegas who <laughs> take the number one spot, surprisingly, which was very, very surprising. Yeah, so so to just follow up to that, you know, thanks for the support, everyone. We've only been doing this 11 months and our subscriber numbers have grown exponentially, like 150 million percent. I don't even know how to math that, but we have like it's a lot. Um it's really great. It's been less than a year and it's so thrilling to to see, you know, to have your support and and to know that we're reaching more and more people. It's really yeah. fun. We love each and every one of you. Yeah, and thank you. So, so there's that in the hurly burly bubble. Branching out a tiny bit, OMG, the Folger in Washington D.C. is doing King John from October to December, and I'm fucking gonna see it if it kills me. God damn it! Also, our good friend Kate Eastwood Norris plays the bastard in this production, which is so exciting. So I know it's gonna be fucking brilliant. So I can't wait. I'm, I don't know when exactly I'm going to get my tickets. Probably sometime in November. But, like, I'm going to see it if it kills me. Do it. I'm going to see it. King John, cannon completion, white whale, I got you. I know I'm sounding more and more like Captain Ahab, but it's it's going to happen. I'm going to get it. Before King John happens, uh, if you are in the D.C. metro area, or if that's drivable for you, uh, the Folger right now is doing uh, Davenant's adaptation of Macbeth, which theoretically hasn't been performed in like 400 years whoa so maybe go see that uh davenant's macbeth i i i'm not super familiar with but is um as i understand it it is the musical version of the play oh (laughs) yeah oh boy with just spectacle as the ass this is this is like macbeth meets wicked As I understand it, I might be completely wrong. Uh, but it also is starring Kate Eastwood Norris as Lady Mac. So go see it if you can. It closes the 23rd of September. So like one week from when this airs. But if you're out there, go see it and then tell us about it. <laughs> if you don't know who Kate Eastwood Norris is, first of all, fix that. You're wrong. Um, but she's an incredibly talented clown and yeah. an actor all around. She's, she's also done an amazing, regional, like, so it, I think it's okay is. if people in like Vegas or Southeast Asia don't know who she is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, she, she was the Hamlet, the female Hamlet I talked about in our Hamlet episode. She was the one who played Hamlet at, oh. at Santa Cruz Shakespeare. So she's bi-coastal at least sure. a little bit. Uh, in this country but like she's a an amazing clown and she's done like one woman shows she came and talked to our mfa class about um the small scale shows like she's just so talented and so fun and i am glad of her success in booking these shows at the folger because i just i love watching her work so speaking of interesting work happening in dc this apparently is the summer of the new artistic director because 
The Shakespeare Theater Company of Washington, D.C. just announced their new artistic director, Simon Godwin. Uh, he's from the U.K. He previously served as the art- associate director of London's Royal Court Theater and was the associate director of the Bristol Old Vic. He will take over STC in 2019. You know, I don't know much about the dude personally. I haven't seen any of his work that I'm aware of, but it has prompted some clucks of disapproval like most of these appointments do from the corners of our theatrical community because, you know, it's yet another white guy um, being being promoted to one of these positions over many, many candidates of diverse backgrounds and ethnicities um, who are also deserving. So... Um, I mean, I just I noticed it was a flare up on Twitter this week, which is why I bring it up. I'm not sure he's a controversial pick other than that, other than like, oh, look, a white guy got promoted over everybody else. Hmm, it happened again. But, you know, worth pointing out. Congratulations, Simon. It'll be interesting to see the work that you do. Last week, our matchups were Barabbas from the Jew of Malta versus Leontes from uh, the Winter's Tale. And mm-hmm. Edmund from Lear versus Don John from Much Ado. I fundamentally disagree with Edmund winning over John John, but I'm willing to let that stand. Uh, but th- yeah, in no way does Barabbas lose to Leontes. So uh, our winners are Barabbas and Edmund. And uh, I disagree with half of that, but it's not just up to me. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> so, uh, ta-da, there it is. Uh, Barabbas yep. and, and Edmund will move forward and they will, uh, go up against someone in the second round. Uh, Somebody. so this week we've got the battle of alliteration. First up, we have Portia from the Merchant of Venice versus Proteus of the two gentlemen of Verona. You remember Portia, don't Portia you? socks. Portia, Portia is sucks. Portia is the villain of this play. Portia sucks. Do you want to take? She's okay. You you take Portia sucks. then. Yep, go for it. You tell us why Portia's a dick. Portia yes. sucks. Okay. First of all, Portia's mm-hmm. racist. She is racist af. Um, she says horrible things about the Prince of Morocco. Mostly, she's like, I don't want to marry you because you're black, which is shitty. And yes, this is a play written 400 years ago, and times were different, but it's still shitty. Racism is never okay, even when it is the accepted way of life. Okay? Right. She's shitty. She's a shitty racist. Word. When it comes to the trial scene, she she is the reason that Shylock gets everything he gets uh, in, the, in the end of that play. And the punishment that she doles out to him, I think, is disproportionate to his crimes. I'm, I'm not trying to say that Shylock is a cuddly teddy bear who has done no wrong, because clearly he's not. But his actions don't merit everything that she takes from him, which is yeah. everything. She takes everything from him. She takes all his yeah. money, all his wealth, all his property, and forces him to convert to Christianity, which yeah. is a whole separate issue that is not okay. It's not okay. Portia sucks. Agreed. However, on the other side of this matchup, you have Proteus, who violates the bro code by going after his best friend's girl, not only does he try to go after her, he tries to rape her. And somehow, inexplicably, his best friend still forgives him at the end of all of that. Um, So he's a little rapey. He doesn't have any idea of boundaries. And he violates the bro code, man. Like, don't do that. <laughs> I um, mean, I don't really I, I don't give know. a shit about the bro code. For me, it's the attempted rape. 
But I mean, in terms of like first, that was the first thing that happened is that he thought he could, even though he knew his best friend was in sure. love with this girl and she him, sure. he still went after her. Right. He went after her and then he went after her and like tried to rape her, which is even worse. Right. I'm not saying that it's yeah. not as bad, but okay. like, because that's definitely worse. But like making the choice, knowing that your best friend is in love with somebody and then still going after that person, that's fucked up. A little bit. It's really bit. messed up. That's a dick move, man. A dick move. A little bit. So. Okay. Uh, there's so those, those two. Those are those two. Uh, up next, we have D'Ambrel from uh atheist tragedy and he goes up against dionysa from pericles um so mm-hmm. to to refresh first of all if you didn't listen to our summer minisode on the plot of the atheist tragedy go mm-hmm. back and do that before you chime in so Danville from the atheist tragedy go go listen to that episode but uh importantly he ships his nephew off to uh France to battle um, so that he can disinherit his nephew and get all of the the money that his nephew would have gotten and then puts out that his nephew has died so that he can have the money and then tries to rape his son's wife so that he can make sure that there is an heir because his son is sickly and can't sleep with his wife. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, and also he murders his brother. So, so he's got, he disinherits his nephew, he murders his brother, and he rapes his daughter-in-law, or tries to rape his daughter-in-law. Mm-hmm. Going up against D'Amville is Dionysa, who starts out as an okay figure, right? She, you know, Pericles helps her and her husband, like, survive a famine, and they feel indebted to him. And so when he shows up on their doorstep again saying hey i've got this like baby and i can't take care of her myself because my wife just died um he you know gives his daughter marina to their safekeeping and they raise her and then all of a sudden once marina's grown up dionyza takes a look at her and decides oh actually she's prettier and more loved by my own people than my own daughter she must die so she betrays the trust that pericles has put in her Uh, to raise his daughter for him she arranges to have marina murdered by a murderer whose name escapes me right now um so she won't even do the dirty work herself leonine thank you she won't even do the dirty work herself she just sends an assassin to kill the poor girl um which you know if you've listened to our pericles episode you know that that doesn't work um but then she after that like feels no remorse for it whatsoever her her own husband calls her out on it and she's like, what? You, you, you would have done the same thing to save our daughter's reputation. It was all about image and reputation for her. Um, she gave no fucks about anything else. And because of that, she and also her husband were punished by the gods, I guess, by being like struck by lightning and burned alive. So she dragged her husband down with her and he didn't, he didn't want any of that. So she's an attempted murderess who doesn't even have the guts to do the shit herself and then gets like her own country and her husband destroyed with her so she is also a dick there you have it those are our matchups vote in the polls yeah portia versus proteus dmville versus dionysa yep. so you can you can find those polls on on twitter at hurlyburly shake or on instagram at hurlyburly shakes yep or you can shoot us an email if you're not on twitter or instagram at uh holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com also you know leave it in the comments on the website if you want like 
any way you want to try to get in touch with us and weigh yeah. in on on these matchups. We welcome your input. So. We'd love to hear it. All right, y'all. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah, tune in next week because we are going back to As You Like It with a 201 episode. It's going to be great. Yay! Whamlet out! If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell all your friends. Rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla, which is H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. I will not go with thee. I will instruct my sorrows to be proud, for grief is proud and makes his owner stoop. To me and to the state of my great grief, let kings assemble, for my grief so great that no supporter but the huge firm earth can hold it up. Here I and sorrow sit. Here is my throne. Bid kings come bow to it. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Since I've been on the road, got out of jail six months ago. I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door, cause to tell the truth, I can't take it no more. Honorificale... Honorificabilitudinatatibus. Damn it. Honorificabilitudinatatibus. Honorific... Okay, I know I got this. I got this. I got this. Honorificabilitudinatibus. Honorificabilitudinatibus. Welcome to episode 35, where Aubrey and Jess butcher Latin. <laughs>